I want to begin this morning with a, with a question. And the question is this. <clears throat> Why is the New Testament so insistent that unity within the body of Christ is critical to the success of the church? And why similarly does the New Testament stress repeatedly that disunity, conflict, factionalism, bitterness, unforgiveness, strife is so debilitating to the cause of Christ? I think it's important to ask that question. It's important for us to have a very clear and precise answer. And to answer that question, I want you to look with me at the passage of Scripture we're going to put on the screen. It's from John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. In this prayer, John 17, Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Do you notice that? Christ prays for us. And he prays this prayer three times. And the prayer is that his body would be unified. And I don't think he's talking about a universal, Catholic, worldwide church. I think his focus here is local, individual churches. He's prayed for his disciples previously. And he says, now I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their, the disciples' testimony, preaching, communication of the gospel. And his prayer is this, that we, Hope Markham, would be one. And when Jesus prays something once, it's significant. When he prays it twice, it's incredibly significant. But he repeats it three times. We've got to stop and ask ourselves, why? Like, what is the what is the reason behind this? Why is the passion so strong in the heart of Jesus? And the answer is given to us twice. So that the world may believe that you sent me. He says it twice. He prays it three times, and then he says it twice. Here's why I'm praying. Here's why this is so critically important. That the world might come to believe in the validity of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a huge subject, and it's probably somebody smarter than, than I should write a book on this. How, how does that work itself out practically? How does the church being unified prove to a suspicious, unbelieving world that the incarnation is, in fact, a reality? We don't have time to go into all of it. We, I probably don't understand all of it. But the point I want you to see is this. The incarnation of Jesus is made manifest to our world as the church lives in unity. The incarnation of Jesus, the fact that God became a man and dwelt amongst us, that Jesus was the son of the living God, becomes patently obvious to the world, manifestly clear to the world, 
when his body lives in extraordinary unity and love. I'm not just talking about the absence of conflict. I'm not just talking about the kind of sort of church where Matilda comes in here and Gladys comes in here and they haven't spoken to each other in 30 years because something had happened so long ago they can't remember about it. But they tolerate each other. They put up with each other as long as they don't have to interact with one another. That's not what I'm talking about. The absence of conflict is not Christian unity. Christian unity is when the church moves forward together in concert, in loving unity to achieve our shared goal, which is to bring honor and glory and praise to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which brings people to recognize who Jesus is. And it's this kind of unity that validates the truth of the incarnation. Now, <clears throat> we were told a couple of weeks ago that over half of us on this planet watched the Queen's funeral. How many of you sort of watched it or saw part of it? Lots of us did. And I don't know if you saw that, <clears throat> that procession that went from um, Westminster Abbey to uh, the Wellington Arch were those 142 particularly special chosen sailors, men and women, pulled the queen's casket. Some were in front, some were in back. But there they were. They were holding hands. They were shoulder to shoulder. They were harnessed together. And they were walking forward in unity to honor their king, or their queen, in death. It was a beautiful picture of unity in honoring the queen. Every church that advances the kingdom of God, every church that brings glory and honor to Christ is, a, is pictured or is a reflection of that picture. It's men and women, hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, harnessed together to honor our living, victorious king. And somehow, through that unity... Through that love, God orchestrates transformation in our world as people who otherwise wouldn't believe in the incarnation come face to face with the fact that God became man and dwelt amongst us. That's a powerful thing. The church has used over the centuries all kinds of approaches to try to advance the cause of the gospel. But I'm convinced of this. <clears throat> A unified church is God's primary means of changing this world. <clears throat> Simple. A unified church, a church that genuinely loves one another, that is unified in those things that God has called us to be unified in, is a powerful, potent agent for change in a culture in which God's placed it, in the community into which God has placed it. And this is why Paul was so concerned about the issue of Iodia and Syntyche. He mentions those ladies in chapter 4 of Philippians. They were in disagreement. They were not in unity. They weren't loving each other well. They weren't deferring to each other. They weren't blessing one another. They weren't considering one another more important than themselves. Something had come between those two women. And Paul takes time and says, look, this has to be rectified. We need to fix this. We don't know what the issue was, but Paul's telling Clement and, and others, guys, sit down with these women 
and bring them to a place of unity because unity is absolutely critical to the success of the church. So I want you to take your Bibles with me and let's go to Philippians chapter chapter 1 and we'll begin at verse 27. Paul says this, and, and, and listen for the words, uh, the unifying words, the words of oneness, the, word, the words of unity. Only yet let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you, or graced to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. So, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins in verse 27 saying this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He says, let your behavior be worthy of the gospel. He uses a word from which we get today, politics. And back then, it meant citizenship. And so what Paul is literally saying in this when he says, let your manner of life or let your behavior, he says, act in a way that is, pro- uh, act in a way that is appropriate for people who are citizens of the kingdom of God. Act in a way that is appropriate for people who are gospel citizens. I remember growing up as a kid, and when I would do things wrong, my dad would often say to me, he was not the, the, the punisher so much as my mom was. My mom sort of you know, did the spanking, dad did the talking mostly. And uh, although when dad did the spanking, that was not good. But anyway, um, dad was the talker and he would talk to us kids and he says, you know, we don't behave this way in this family. This, is not, this behavior isn't consistent with how we as a family behave, how we act. This is not the manner in which we function as a family. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying there is a pattern, there's a way of living that is consistent with the gospel. There's a way of living that is worthy of the gospel, and we need to understand what that is. And so what does a worthy life look like? He begins immediately to talk about unity. What does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel or as a gospel citizen or a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? It's about unity. It's about staying unified in the body of Christ. Listen to some of the words that he's used. Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, 
striving side by side. Be of the same mind. Be in full accord. He uses the words of, he uses the word mind or same mind or one mind three times in nine verses. It's clear that Paul understands that a, a, a life worthy of the kingdom of God is a life pursuing unity in the kingdom of God. And in this passage of scripture, Paul speaks about three different ways that it is absolutely critical that we have unity. Now, he's not talking about uniformity. He's not saying we all got to walk in lockstep. We all have to dress the same. We all have to enjoy the same kind of recreation activities. He doesn't say that we have to be clones of each other. But he's going to talk about three things that are absolutely critical for our unity as the church. If we are going to honor Christ and see the kingdom of God advance. And the first thing is this, a unity in the gospel. A unity in the gospel. Let me read verse 27 again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says, the gospel is critical. So stand firm. Don't retreat from the gospel. Stand firm in one spirit, striving or moving forward side by side in lockstep, supporting one another for the faith of the gospel. Now, they knew what he was talking about because Paul had come and he had preached the gospel. There was a little church that was on the move that included Paul and Luke and others, and they came and they presented the gospel of Jesus Christ, and their unity, their love for one another validated and supported everything that they had articulated, and Lydia got saved, and the slave girl got saved, and, 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 and the church began to grow. And the gospel transformed the lives of these Philippians. So there's no question that these people understood when Paul said the faith of the gospel. They understood what Paul was talking about, clearly. He was talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a message that had its, has its core, its center, its bullseye in the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That idea that, God, that, that Christ's death satisfied God's righteous anger for our sin and that Jesus on the cross gave us his perfect righteousness to make us therefore acceptable to God. It's the message of grace that salvation is not a result of works, not a result of our effort, not a result of our merit, not a result of our religious devotion, so that we have nothing to boast in. It's all of grace from beginning to end. It's a message that teaches that the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And Paul is saying to these Christians, hang tightly to the gospel. And why is he saying that? Why is this a priority for him? They know the gospel, don't they? Well, Paul knew that even in his day, 
25, 30 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that there were counterfeit gospels. All you have to do is read Galatians, and you know that there is a pernicious, evil, counterfeit gospel making its way through the early church, destroying the lives of Christians and destroying churches. Counterfeit gospels are everywhere today, and that's why it's so critical that we know the real thing. Because the way to know a counterfeit is to be so familiar with the real thing that the counterfeit becomes obvious, right? So what are some of these counterfeit gospels? The gospel that promises health and prosperity is a big one, is a huge one. The gospel that suggests that we can earn heaven based on our supposed moral goodness. The gospel that replaces the grace of Jesus with the grace bestowed upon us by a church or by some sacrament or by some religious devotion. The tolerant gospels that ignore God's wrath for sin and promise universal salvation in the end because God is love and love triumphs and love wins and ignores the holiness of God. There are so many manifestations or iterations of false gospels back in the first century, today in the 21st century, that the church that is going to make an impact for Christ in the world must, must, must be unified around the true gospel of Christ. We must understand it and we must preach it. Every other gospel is an impotent gospel. They can't quicken or regenerate a dead sinner. Sure, they can help us transform ourselves. The gospel that Oprah preaches, the spirituality that she preaches, has has morally transformative effect. That's maybe a good thing, but it is not the gospel. It is only the gospel that the apostle Paul preached, only that gospel that can quicken a dead sinner, that can bring people from death Spiritual death to spiritual life. And the reason is because the gospel that Paul preached, the biblical gospel that we hold to as a church, is the only gospel that brings sinners face to face with our greatest dilemma. That we are sinners. That God is holy and he hates sin. And that God's holiness and our sinfulness have created a divide, have created an alienation that we simply cannot deal with on our own. That's man's dilemma. But God has that same dilemma. Because he is holy and because we are sinful, there is a gap, an infinite gap, that seemingly could not be bridged. I want you to show, I want to show you that, and I call that God's dilemma. Go to Proverbs for a second. There's a very, very interesting verse in Proverbs 17, 15. <clears throat> in this passage of scripture, God the Holy Spirit inspired the author of the book of Proverbs to say this little phrase that I think is hugely significant to this discussion. Particularly when you think about some of these false gospels. Proverbs 17, 15 says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. See that? 
That is God's dilemma. God loved us. God's desire was to redeem us. But God had said in the Old Testament that it was an abomination to justify the wicked. It is an abomination to condemn the righteous. So given that situation, what is God to do? Well, the gospel explained it. And one of the most beautiful, one of the most powerful passages that explain how God solved our dilemma and his dilemma and bridged that alienation is in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says that God made him, Jesus, who had never sinned to become sin in order that we might become as righteous as God is through him. The only way this dilemma, the only way that this bridge could possibly ever be bridged, this gap could possibly ever be bridged, was the gospel. That Jesus became sin for us. No other message can rouse a dead sinner out of his or her sin-induced stupor. Only the gospel can cause a person to be born again. It's the most powerful message in the world because what God did on the cross is he took his perfect, sinless, holy, beloved son and he made him sin. God piled all of our sin, the sin of his elect, on the person of Jesus Christ. And R.C. Sproul says in in one of his books called The Holiness of God, which is a great read, I'd, I'd recommend it to you, that in that moment while Jesus hung on the cross, he became the most vile creature in the universe, so vile that God had to turn his face away from his son. On the cross, Jesus was not the righteous son of God. He was cursed. He became sin. And God vented his just and holy wrath on his son in order that he could bring us into relationship with himself and thereby solve the dilemma. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. God loved this world. He sent his son to redeem his sheep. And he took his sinless, holy son who had qualified to go to the cross by living a perfect, law-abiding life and he made him vile. He gave us Christ's perfection. And in six hours, he vented his righteous and holy indignation and wrath for my sin and your sin on his son so that I could be forgiven and stand before him today as an adopted son of the living God, beloved because of what Jesus has done. When we present that message, when we present it in its bloody ugliness, God quickens dead sinners and brings them to faith. That's the key. It's the gospel. And if a church ever begins to waver from that gospel, the church ever begins 
to preach something different than that gospel. They have thrown away the means by which dead sinners come to spiritual life. A church that's going to transform its culture, a church that is going to prove that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is genuine and real as a church that is going to fight for, hold, stand for, square on that gospel. So do you. We live in a culture today where it's so kind of inappropriate to say anything definitively, to say anything absolutely. It seems, it's, it's almost presented that if you say something with a definitiveness to it, you're seen as proud and arrogant. You're not a kind of guy that you want to listen to. There's other voices. There's other presentations. Who knows? Well, let me say this. That was not the Apostle Paul. That was not the Apostle Paul. He was absolutely unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he didn't equivocate. He didn't change it. He didn't accommodate it to fit the context. He just preached it. And folks, we cannot, we cannot change from that commitment. We must be unified in our understanding of the gospel. So are you? Has it gripped you? Has that bloody, horrific message of anger and sacrifice transformed you in here? Because no other religious formulation in the world can. Nothing does. Nothing can cause a man or a woman to be born again but the gospel of Christ. And it's so easy to miss because there's so many counterfeits out there. But Jesus tells us in the Gospels that one day the church will be filled with good, moral, kind people who will die without ever coming to appreciate the Gospel. They will never see their abject poverty of spirit and their absolute necessity of trusting Jesus. Never fully comprehend the magnificence and the horror of what happened that day. And so I just want to ask you, do you know the gospel and do you trust it? Do you trust him, Jesus? My hope is built on what? Nothing else but Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest from but holy, holy, holy lean on Jesus' name. He is the solid rock. The finished work of Christ is a thing that we must, must, must hold to. But secondly, he talks about a unity in suffering. Look at verse 28 and following. The unity in suffering. Well, let me read the last part of 27. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened at anything by your opponents. That is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you. God has, this is the verbal expression of the word charis or grace. God has graced you for Christ's sake. That you should not only believe in him, but he has graced you with the capacity to suffer for him. 
engaged in the same, you're engaged in the same suffering that you saw I had and now that I still have. See, the consequence of preaching this gospel, this unvarnished, unchanged, unadulterated message that Paul preached is gonna cause, it's gonna create opposition. It's a frightening thing. It's a difficult thing. But Paul says, don't quit. Don't be silenced. Don't be cowed into silence. Keep preaching this message. Don't stop. Don't give up. But this is hard. It's not easy. The Philippians were experiencing now what Paul had experienced as a consequence of preaching the gospel. Paul was experiencing the consequences of what happened to Jesus for preaching the gospel. There was opposition, opponents, and the consequent experience is fear. The resulting experience is that we get intimidated. 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, and to the Jews it's offensive. Gentiles find it foolish, Jews find it offensive. And who amongst us want to be seen as offensive or foolish, right? None of us. But our only option is to continue to share the message, to not back down, to not quit, to not be cowed into silence. 2 Corinthians, 5, 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says this, that the gospel is like the fragrance of Christ. To some, it is a beautiful fragrance from life to life. To others, when they hear this message, it is like the stench of a decomposing corpse. It's the stench of death. For some, it is attractive. They hear the message and they are drawn by the grace of God into a relationship with Jesus through the blood of his son. Others hear the message and they are repulsed because it is repellent to them. It is vile to them when they hear it. And in that case, the gospel calls people to acknowledge that they are sinners. That's repulsive to many. The gospel calls them to humble themselves and to acknowledge that they can't save themselves, that they are spiritually bankrupt, that there is no moral goodness within their character, within their soul, and that they don't have what's necessary to save themselves. And as a result, it's, it's a repugnant message. It's repellent. Every other religion in the world, and I learned just the other day that 4,200 religions or expressions or religious formulations in our world. Every single one of them, other than biblical Christianity, other than the genuine gospel of Jesus Christ, tells people, one, you're not that bad. And two, with a little religious effort, you can save yourself. Like, look at any religious formulation over the centuries, since the beginning of time. They all say the same thing. You are not that bad. There is a residual moral goodness in you. And if you will simply follow the pattern of religion that we have set out, you can climb the ladder, and one day you can get to God. You can save yourself. It's only the biblical gospel that asks people to swallow this distasteful, humbling, bitter pill 
that robs them of their supposed self-righteousness and moral goodness, causes them to confess their utter sinfulness and total spiritual bankruptcy, and to simply trust Jesus. Simply trust Jesus. And it's our job to unashamedly keep presenting that message, despite the fact that it will cause suffering. I guarantee you that if you share your, the gospel of Christ, the authentic, not a counterfeit gospel, sometimes counterfeit gospels can seem so appealing to a lot of people. God wants me to be healthy and rich and he loves me and he's just going to pour good things into my life. Well, where, where, where's that church? Because that's the church I'm going to go to. When you, when you present a message that is focused on the cross, that you're a sinner, that the only way that you can be saved is by trusting Jesus. And when you come to him, you've got to pick up a cross just like his and follow him in suffering. When you share the gospel and say to people, it is not only being granted unto you to believe in Jesus, but you have the privilege of following him into a life of sacrifice and suffering for his kingdom and his glory. You want to come? The only thing that causes a person to respond to that is the Holy Spirit using the gospel, using the gospel to quicken a dead sinner and bringing them to newness of life in Christ. That's why we must, be, must never be ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, says the apostle in Romans 1.16, for it is the power of God and the salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. The reality is that we are in a war for the, the eternal souls of men and women. We have been given the opportunity opportunity, the obligation, the responsibility of taking a message that we know is going to cause us suffering and to go regardless of the cost because Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. Lost people need to hear. So here's the thing. When we have a church that is fully committed to the orthodox gospel that Paul preached and used to transform Philippi. When that gospel is in our mouths and we are boldly and assertively and lovingly and graciously sharing that message, despite the opposition, despite the criticism, despite the rejection, despite the mocking, we have the potential to radically change our world but there's one more thing. One more thing that unless we get this right, it's all for naught. The third thing that Paul talks about, and I would say the most important thing in this passage, is a unity in Christ-like love. A unity in Christ-like love. Chapter 2, verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant or more important than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul makes four rhetorical statements to make the point that there certainly is encouragement in Christ. There certainly is comfort in love. There certainly is fellowship or participation in the Holy Spirit. There is affection and sympathy in the church. What he's essentially saying is that when you do suffer, when times get hard, when your family rejects you, when you lose a job because of your commitment to the gospel, when you're seen as a bigot and intolerant because you are continuing to present the good news of Jesus Christ, Paul wants you to know that there is a place, there is a context in which you will be encouraged and loved and comforted and blessed, not only by the people of God, but by the Spirit of God. I think that's his point. I love, the way that, I love the way that the NASB translates verse 5. Our translation says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The NASB says this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ's attitude was one of absolute selflessness. He went to that cross knowing that he was not just going to die, he knew that he was going to the cross to be cursed. He was, there was going to be a cleavage in the Godhead. The father was going to turn his back on his son. The son was going to become vile and disgusting. He was going to take the sin of the world upon himself as we took his perfect righteousness from him and clothed ourselves with it by grace. That's the heart of Christ. He is laying down his life for his people. And he says to us, have that same attitude. Have that same attitude. Be like Jesus in your relationships. Have the attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And next week, we're going to look at this magnificent, magnificent passage of Scripture that speaks about what Christ has done for us. But he describes what that Christ-likeness is like. He says in verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. There is, a, there is a word, I don't know if it really is a word, but there's a word that I've often used in my old church, and it's otherness. Otherness. Christian love is otherness. It's, others, it's other-centric. It's not selfish. It's selfless. It's not focused on my needs. It's focused on the needs of others. It's a giving love. And what Paul is saying, that unless a church has that, unless that is the ethos, unless that is the environment in which we live, we cannot fully be unified. So hear me when I say this. God intends us, expects us, has created and designed us to be an extraordinary loving community of otherness. 
where we lay down our lives for one another, where we give of ourselves for one another, where we put others ahead of us and we take second place, where we love our wives selflessly, where we respect our husbands selflessly, where we love our children, where we love our neighbors, where we love the body of Christ in a way that reflects the love that Jesus demonstrated to us. Do you know what 1 Corinthians 13 says? If I have the tongue of men and angels, and I lay down my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I'm like a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You see, the church is called to be an example, a living testimony, a tangible representation of what happened at the cross. One of the ways that we demonstrate to the world that the incarnation is a reality is that Jesus shows up amongst us by his spirit and so radically transforms us that non-Christians come into our fellowships and they say, what in the world is happening here? There is a love flowing here and a kindness. There is a forgiving spirit in this place. There is a other, there's an otherness that I see nowhere else in the world. What in the world is going on here? And we just simply say, Jesus is in our midst. He's not dead. He's here. He's changed me. He's taken that selfish, stubborn, self-centered, ugly person, and he's changed him by grace into somebody that is trying by grace with the help of the Holy Spirit to love the way Jesus loves. Folks, when that ethos, that culture, that environment is created in any church, that church is an unstoppable force. So let me say in closing, we can get the gospel right we can understand the gospel and we can distinguish it clearly from all the counterfeit garbage that's all swirling out there in Christianity. We can get the gospel right and we can preach it boldly and we can suffer the consequences of preaching it boldly and we can have strong shoulders and resist and comfort one another, encourage one another when we get beat up in the world, we come back in here and we're blessed and encouraged and ministered to and all that is great, that's awesome. But if we do not have a unity in love, if we are unforgiving and we are bitter and we are not generous and kind and we are not selfless and the otherness of Christ doesn't well up within us and we don't consider others as more important than ourselves and we're pushy and we want our own way and we're bitter and we won't let it go and we hang on to that grudge. Our actions speak louder than our words. They always will. They always will. And this is why this is so critical. We understand the love of Jesus. And we preach the love of Jesus. And we suffer for the love of Jesus. And then we demonstrate the love of Jesus. 
And then people go, Jesus is there. Father, build them into a unit, a perfect unit, so that the world might know that you sent me and that I have loved them. How can we refuse to love and to forgive and to show mercy and be gracious and kind and selfless when we know what Jesus has done for us? It's, is it hard? Sure. But when we go to the foot of the cross on a day like today, on a day when we just say, thank you for the cross, my friend, Thank you for taking my sin. Thank you for taking my place. Thank you for all that you did for me. How can you not, at the foot of the cross, just turn around and give it to someone else? When you realize the significance of your violation against the holy God, anyone else's trivial little hurt against you can easily be forgiven. Amen? So we need to be that church, like the Philippian church, unified in the gospel, unified in our commitment to sharing it, unified in our willingness to suffer for it, and unified in our willingness to live it out. Let's pray and ask God to do that for us. Father, these are hard words sometimes, hard to hear, hard to live. The only way you know that we will ever live this out, this life of otherness and selflessness, is when we go and see what it cost you when God put our sin on your shoulders. And we see what you gave to us, the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy and the kindness, how you laid down your life for us, Lord. And then suddenly as we see that, suddenly as the gospel does its work in us, we begin to find it possible put others ahead of ourselves, to consider others more important than ourselves, to be of one mind, to be of one spirit, to love the way Jesus loved. So Lord, that's what we want for our church. We want to be unified in these things. By your grace, I pray that it would be the case today that we would, by the Holy Spirit's working, transform our hearts that we might reflect these three points of unity, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.